Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British royal history. Welcome to 2022! <laughs> I hope all of you had a really good New Year's and also enjoyed the live broadcast right before New Year's. And I really enjoyed it. And if you all enjoyed it, let me know. It is uh, in the archives of the podcast now. So if you want to tune in again, by all means, go for it. It was a little bumpy because <laughs> I'm still, that was our first live, still trying to figure out the rhythm, how it all works. But if you like them, and of course, as the community continues to grow, if you would like them to be more regularly scheduled, just let me know. We'll figure out something, but we'll try to do lives ever so often as the community continues to grow. We've made it to 2022. We've officially hit, I believe we're at the one year anniversary of the British Royal Fanatic podcast. If not this episode, I believe next, possibly next week will be the one year anniversary. And it's exciting. And we're, you know, still small, but I enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to the future. On the basis of future, by the end of January, we will already be having video podcasts and beginnings of digital content. I'm still getting my setup here in a place to where I can do video content and be able to put out a good product. A little bit into my personal life, I'm kind of at an impasse with graduate school right now, and ultimately it's looking like I'll be leaving graduate school for my own happiness and for my own mental health. Once a final decision's made and a path is clear, I'll update everybody on the podcast, but things are a little, you know, scary and anxious right now in my personal life. But We'll discuss that once that time comes, but looking forward to January, there will be video content out there. There'll be a YouTube page where at least for now free content, but if things start taking off, there might be a Patreon in the future. Who knows? I have a lot of ideas and now it's a matter of just streamlining it all. We do have a few updates. There's a big one that we're going to start following now that, one, we have the time for it, we meaning me, but there are a few other minor stories in terms of royal news. So there's two short stories, uh, the first one being that uh, Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cornwall has officially been granted the Order of the Garter, and that is a pretty big deal as um, this is fully a big sign that the Queen and the rest of the monarchy, the institution, the firm, every, all the powers that be, this is sort of the last big sign and big signal that Camilla will be queen one day. She will be queen consort, and there's nothing that we can do about it at this point. This is a really big honor. We had talked about a few weeks ago where there was bubblings of she might be made a chancellor of state so that she could take on more responsibilities. Again, as she prepares to be queen consort, uh, Charles and her are really starting to take on more duties as um, the queen's health is starting to... Again, it's still in this precarious state, but she's pulling back and the rest of the firm are beginning to step forward, especially Charles and Camilla. But she has been made a member of the Order of the Garter. And this is a pretty big deal as it's been a while since a consort has actually has been given the investiture. Of course, Prince Philip was already given the Order of the Garter upon marriage to Queen Elizabeth uh, when she was Princess Elizabeth. But there hasn't been a Princess of Wales that's been made a member of the Garter for a while, for a pretty good while now. Uh, to keep in mind, Diana was never made a member of the Order of the Garter. She also wasn't made 
uh, Dame Commander of the uh, Victorian Order, I believe that's what the sash, the uh, Duchess of Cornwall had now. Uh, the only order that Diana had was the family order that all the women get in the family, whether you are uh, actual a blood royal or married into. But Camilla is a member of the Order of the Garter. This is a big deal. Of course, everybody remembers when Charles and Camilla married, there was a big press statement saying, no, she will not be queen consort. She will not be using her title of Princess of Wales. She will not be made queen consort. She will then be made princess consort. And that was actually on the Clarence House and official bio of her on the Royal Family website for quite a long time. But about four or five years ago, I believe they officially just removed it and didn't say anything about it. And now people are starting to pick up on it that oh they all record of them saying she was going to be princess consort is now gone and with this uh investiture in the order of the garter this is a pretty big deal so that is uh camilla news and of course on january 9th it is the birthday for her royal highness the duchess of cambridge she's turning 40 and press outlets everywhere are beginning to really uh start to cover there's already some fluff pieces right now out about her turning 40 and the firm seems to be making a big deal about it and it is a big deal turning 40 so happy early birthday to her royal highness the duchess of cambridge and i hope within the family they have a pretty good celebration there the big news that we're covering is with his royal highness the duke of york so the duke of york is things are beginning to progress forward and we're going to talk about it uh just a quick update for those who haven't been following along or if they've forgotten or who whoever we all live our own lives but prince andrew is connected to the epstein sexual traffic scandal and the sexual assault allegations um we all who have been following know that uh i believe it's pronounced uh jillian maxwell i believe her first name spelled weird but she was found guilty of all the charges presented to her and so she's awaiting sentencing but now that she has been uh, at least found found guilty now all of the attention is being shifted to prince andrew so prince andrew has been uh accused of sexual assault allegations uh by virginia roberts guffrey uh, who we'll refer to as guffrey from now on and again i hope i'm pronouncing that right uh, Prince Andrew has been accused of sexual assault allegations by her, and she has started to present some form of evidence as, hey, this is what happened. And things are now mounting to where uh, people are calling, people being the general public, are saying that Prince Andrew needs to be held responsible. And, of course, he has officially withdrawn from royal duties. He is no longer an active member of the firm. He hasn't been since... Oh, wow. Uh, I think 2019 was the last time he really did anything. It's been a good while since he's been an active member of the, of the firm. He's really fallen back into privacy. He did a big interview to try to squelch things, but it ended up making things worse. Well, now we have a development. So a few weeks ago, we talked about how Prince Andrew's team is trying to get everything dismissed. They're saying that Guffrey has no grounds to stand on the case that she's mounting is insufficient and needs to be thrown out and on monday the third judge lewis kaplan ordered the terms of the 2009 settlement between epstein and guffrey to be made public 
And this essentially was a $500,000 US dollar agreement that uh, essentially whatever happened to her, either through Epstein or through anybody else that was hired out, she couldn't uh, sue. That's essentially very bare bones layman's terms. There's a whole bunch of other details, but if anything happened to you while under all of this, and if there's been an agreement made, no matter what, you can't sue. Um, if anybody's, there's a whole bunch of terms there that outline why she can't sue, who she can't sue against, you know, everything else. Um, well, Andrew's lawyers are saying that that agreement in 2009 extends to uh, to him and any other lawsuits from from Guffrey, and they hope that the judge will take their side and go, "Yep, this agreement extends to him. Therefore, you can't sue. This is being thrown out." Uh, Guffrey's team is saying that the wording of the agreement is irrelevant when involving Prince Andrew, and that this whole agreement does completely doesn't apply to him, and that she does have grounds. So essentially, both teams are arguing over the wording of this agreement. One says it does cover him. One says it doesn't. Uh, the prince's attorneys are still calling for the lawsuit to be completely thrown out, and oral arguments went forth on Tuesday the 4th. There was a virtual call at 10 a.m. New York time where the judge heard everything, and as, and again, as a, quick, as a quick recap, the prince denies all accusations against him and says that he has no recollection of ever meeting Guffrey's. He has never been charged with any official criminal offense. He's just been accused. Um, but legal analyst Joe Tamburino uh, explained to CBS News that in the civil suit brought forth by Guffrey demanding unspecific financial damages and just the way this is being presented and go, go, going forward, the standard of proof is lower than if it were an actual criminal case. Um, he said, quote, if she proves more than 50%, she wins. But if she doesn't prove more than 50%, she loses. So there's a real fine line here between whether it gets thrown out or whether it goes forward. If the trial does go ahead, uh, Prince Andrew is facing deposition before a U.S. court, meaning that he would have to give sworn testimony in relation to the allegations against him for the very first time. He's denied, 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 and now if it were to go forth, he'd have to make complete sworn testimony. Maxwell could be called as a witness to all of this, and the attorneys for Guffrey said that they would also want to bring in the Duchess of Sussex to, again, try to fill in his character and to try to, again, uh, have these have him be charged with these accusations. Uh, the Duke of York has been keeping an extremely low profile in the meantime. If we do see him, it's usually him driving to and from a family event, I, I do believe he wasn't at Christmas, though. It was just Charles and Camilla and the Queen at Christmas. But uh, the Duchess of York and the two princesses, Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie, are doing what they can to try to keep a united family front. Again, just to what to like whatever happens, you know, they're trying to do their best, of course, to support their father. But the British royal family and the firm itself has completely cast him aside. They're doing their best to distance themselves. They're trying to really put a line between uh, the Duke of York and the royal family so that if allegations do go forward, if there's a trial that happens, whatever happens here, if it advances forward, they're trying to do their best to distance themselves. They don't want to be associated with it. Now, according to Robert Jobson on Twitter, the judge, as of Tuesday, 
has heard everything and that a decision should be made either very quickly or, or within the next few days, whether or not this will go forward. So the judge has heard everything. The depositions for Tuesday have ceased. And at the time of recording, this is all that we know. Uh, the general public feeling is less than 6% of the UK actually approve or like him. So he has an incredibly low rating the general public say that he's guilty in some way, shape, or form, and that he needs to be held accountable. Justice needs to be served. And just because you're rich and royal doesn't mean that justice, you know, just justice doesn't apply to you. No, you need to be held accountable. People are calling for him to be stripped of his titles and his and uh, his orders and all his military stuff. If this if it does go forward, they're ordering he needs to be stripped of everything. Many people are saying this is a huge blow to the to the royal family, and that if this were to go forward, a lot of dirty laundry could possibly be coming out of the woodwork. In general, there are <laughs> the big point is no matter what his reputation now will never recover that is my big opinion his reputation is set in stone now at this point it will never recover he will never come back to royal work he will just continue to be maintain a low profile for the rest of his life no matter what if and then if he goes forward with charges and he ends up being found guilty again his reputation will never be the same the royal family will get hurt by this in some way shape or form merely by the fact that he is a member of the British royal family. And we're going to cover more of this, as we know. Um, at the time of recording, this is all that we know regarding the Duke of York sexual assault scandal. But as we know more, we will continue to report on it. And if you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter at fanatic underscore royal. I do my best, especially with this, to post as regularly as I can. But those are the three big updates, two small ones and a massive one regarding uh, Camilla, Catherine, and Prince Andrew. So today's topic, this is <laughs> another big landmark development in history. Um, we have an update from the Princes of the Tower. So if you remember back to October when we did Spooky Haunted Stories, one of the ones that I covered was the Princes of the Tower. And there's actually been an update. And here in America, this really flew under the radar. And the only reason I knew about it was because of the historians and commentators that I follow on social media just posted about it. And I followed the Times and the Daily Mail. And they, again, posted articles about it. And it was just in passing. But for those of us that enjoy royal history, this is a pretty big deal. And those of us who like mysteries, this is a pretty big deal. So if you're new to the podcast and haven't heard the mystery of the Princes of the Tower, don't know anything about the Princes of the Tower, we're going to go through bullet points here just so you can be able to follow what's going on. So the Princes of the Tower story happens mainly between 1483 and 1484, and it deals with the young heir to the throne and eventual King Edward V, who was 12 at the time, and his younger brother, Prince Richard, the Duke of York, who was nine at, at, at the time. So we're dealing with with preteens and young children. Their father, Edward IV, died unexpectedly, and the princes were then put under the care of their uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, who then eventually became King Richard III. Uh, Richard III assumed power, the princes were deemed illegitimate, and therefore you know, uh, Edward V couldn't rule, and ultimately uh, Richard III assumed and was coronated as king, and the princes were then placed into the nicer parts of the Tower of London, which was customary for monarchs awaiting their coronation. 
having them placed in the Tower of London at this time in the 15th century wasn't anything scary. There was actually nicer accommodations there. That's where they were placed. But after this, the princes were never seen again. They slowly withdrew from the public spaces of the tower to ultimately where they were never seen again. The accepted theory is that the princes were murdered, and in some way, shape, or form, King Richard III is responsible. Whether he did the murder himself, he or he had someone kill them, or somebody else killed them, in some way, shape, or form, he knew their whereabouts, he was still in charge of their care and their well-being, he had very tight security around them when they were in the Tower of London, so no matter what... The accepted theory is that he is somewhat responsible for this. Whether he made the hit himself or knew someone was doing it, he had to be aware, therefore he's somewhat responsible, if not all the way responsible. Many believe that uh, the theory of Richard III being responsible and actually killing them is a part of propaganda against him because the, the nation at the time was still pretty divided. It was still in this fight for power between uh, royal houses and the princes being alive could be seen as a symbol of rebellion. People could want to try to break them out and it was a threat to his power as king and people already didn't like how he got to power. So many people believe that he killed them as a way to uh, maintain his power and also the other side of the coin. People believe that this was just propaganda made up as a way to hurt Richard III's reputation and keep his place on the throne unstable. Um, therefore, somebody else could come and take it. Bones of children have been found in the Tower of London underneath the stairwell and have been, since been interred at Westminster Abbey that say that those are the princes. There's been two uh, sets of bones, mysterious bones that have been found in St. George's Chapel in the royal vaults underneath that people say those are the princes but the royal collection and the queen have said no, you cannot DNA test these so there's actually no concrete evidence to say what happened to them. All that we know for certain is that they just disappeared. Well now we have an actual substantial update about one of the brothers and it completely changes the narrative. So, in reality, Richard III may not have killed them at all, and one of the princes may have actually escaped to a different town, assumed a fake name and identity, and lived in secrecy for the remainder of their life until their death. Researchers for the past four years have been trying to make sense of all of this as a part of the Missing Princes Project, and they believe they've actually stumbled upon the truth. And not only have they found the truth, they have evidence to support this. The Missing Princes Project is spearheaded by Philippa Langley, and she was the one who also found Richard III's remains in a car park in Leicester in 2012. So she already has a great reputation and the princess project has been trying for four years to really thoughtfully piece together what we do know and evidence they can find to try to find the princes it is believed by them and their team and other historians now that edward v escaped and under an agreement between richard iii and his mother elizabeth woodville he lived under the assumed name of john evans in a rural devon village uh, Langley and her colleagues followed a really intricate paper trail, in, which include many medieval documents that led them to uh, Coldridge, where royal Yorkist symbols have been carved into the local church, St. Matthew's. And upon investigating the church more, they began to piece things together. 
The findings that they found in the church hint at a possible deal struck between Edward V's mother and Richard III that allowed that allowed Edward V to live there in secrecy under the fake name John Evans. Within this church, in this little town, there's a lot of clues that reinforce this claim. And uh, they've said in the many articles that I've read that it was like the Da Vinci Code trying to piece everything together. But once you start noticing patterns, other things begin to stand out and you begin to piece it together. It's not just coincidences after a while. Things start to make sense and feel like they've been put there deliberately. So there are a lot of clues that reinforce this claim that Edward V escaped and is actually John Evans, quote unquote. What are some of these clues? The first one is that there's an effigy of John Evans carved into stone, which includes a scar on his chin that matches the same one and the same location that Edward V had. And this effigy is looking at a stained glass window depiction of Edward V, which is in some ways depicting that they are the same person. There is a broken shield on the tomb of Edward V that includes the name John E.V.A.S., which could hint at, quote, Edward V in sanctuary. So E.V., Edward V, A.S., which is a Latin abbreviation, which translates to in sanctuary. So John, Edward V in sanctuary, which is carved on a shield on uh, John Evans' tomb. There is a stained glass window depiction of Edward V and in the crown around him and fur trim that you you can see, there are 41 small deer on all this fur. Records show that John Evans was the Parker of the deer estate in Coleridge, which again, the deer hinting at Parker, John Evans, we have a stained glass of Edward V. Again, depiction that they are the same person. The Rose of the House of York appears many times throughout the church in wood carvings, floor carvings, and tile work, ceiling work. There's the York Rose appears very frequently in this entire church. There's another stained glass depiction of John Evans, and he has a scar on his face and a deformed mouth and is carrying an ermine jacket and is carrying a crown, which is another big hint to and royalty, king, Edward V, these are the same person. There are three carvings of a woman with a snake's tongue, which is suggested to be a slur against the mother of Henry Tudor, which we'll get to why that is in a minute, or what it could possibly be. And there are two last bits of evidence. Within the church, there is an etching showing the word king in inverted writing written on the tomb of John Evans, as well as nine carved lions that may symbolize the year Edward V would have been able to reclaim the throne, uh, which is 1509, which is after Henry Tudor would have died. And the last one is a medieval prayer desk that has an inscription, pray for John Evans, Parker of Coolridge, of Coldridge, maker of this work in the third reign, in the third year of the reign of Henry VIII. The team believes that this desk was made the same year of all the stained glass windows, which was 1511. So there's a lot of little small bits of evidence that separately just seem independent. But once you think of it in this context of, of the princes in the tower, things begin to make sense. The team has followed well over a hundred lines of interest and evidence and paperwork to lead them to this church in Devon and exploring this mysterious John Evans character. 
This unexpected discovery suggests that Edward V went to live out the rest of his life on the land of his half-brother in Devon, which could have been a part of a deal struck between Richard III and his mother, Elizabeth Woodville, which this deal was then upheld by Henry Tudor. And while Edward V could live out the rest of his life in secrecy, there was a big condition. He had to keep quiet which is possibly, in my opinion, why there's these carved, uh, three carved women with, I know, a snake's tongue hinting at the mother of Henry Tudor, is, you know, he could have easily come back after the death of Richard III, but no, he had to still stay quiet um, back there, and there's a conspiracy theory that Henry Tudor actually had him killed, so it makes sense why there would be some form of slander against Henry Tudor, in this whole story being that he's actually someone that could have possibly killed him. Another point to reinforce that he possibly escaped is that there's no concrete evidence that the princes were actually killed, both Edward V and uh, Richard of Shrewsbury, who was the little Duke of York. There's no evidence to say that they were concretely murdered. All we know is that they've disappeared. And of course, with this new knowledge that he possibly could have escaped, this whole story now is being rewritten as each day passes. But what are the facts about this John Evans character? Why is it that we are associating John Evans with Edward V? Where, what is this connection? Well, we do have some concrete facts. So historians know that in March of 1484, Elizabeth Woodville left Westminster with her daughters after she reached a deal with Richard III. She then wrote to her exiled son, Thomas Gray, the Marquis of Dorset, telling him to come home as Richard III agreed to pardon him. Now, since he was exiled, Richard III had seized a lot of his lands and on March 3rd of 1484, royal documents show that Richard had sent an unknown follower on a mission from Yorkshire to Coleridge in Devon, which sits within the Marquis of Dorset's seized lands. It's a big deal that it was his half-brother's lands. Soon after this secret mission out to uh, Coleridge in Devon, John Evans suddenly appears in the village. There's no record of him before. There's no record of this specific John Evans in any other town. He just, boom, appears. And not only did he appear out of nowhere, he was given the title Lord of the Manor. And no records have been found of Evans' life before arriving in Devon with the prestigious title of Lord of the Manor and also Parker of the 130 Deer Strong Park behind the church. Again, it appears out of nowhere. So he appears in this town, this John Evans character, out of nowhere, gets title Lord of the Manor, gets title of Parker, and is in charge of all this land and all this deer behind the church. Again, seemingly out of nowhere, one right after the other. And while he was there in Devon, he went on to build the chantry at the village church. And this is where all these clues about Edward V and John Evans begin to appear. Many historians have said, quote, the, uh, this man, John Evans, has been given these prestigious titles despite apparently arriving out of the blue, which is very odd to say the least. And quote, it is possible that Edward was sent there to live in secrecy as part of the deal that we know was agreed between Richard and his mother. It was the chantry at the local St. Matthew's Church that led historians to publish their findings, and this was built by John Evans in 1511, which is full of Yorkist symbolism 
and also uh, stained glass depictions of a saint-like boy king, Edward V. Aside from this, there's only, you know, there's only one other glass portrait of Edward V. The other one is the royal window at Canterbury Cathedral, which again has historians asking, why are these random depictions of Edward V in these churches in nowhere, in these village, you know, these rural country churches, why are these depictions appearing out of nowhere? All this evidence goes to suggest that in the building, if John Evans and Edward V are the same person, this was his way to communicate to future generations that, hey, this is who I am. I am actually Edward V. I am this exiled king. I escaped. And he tried to do it in a subtle way. You know, he couldn't breach the agreement of actually being vocal. He had to keep quiet. Which makes sense. You want to leave subtle hints. You don't want to make it very obvious. And while there is this general new idea of, okay, this is where Edward V went, we still don't know about the little Duke of York, Richard, Prince Richard. We don't know anything about him. This is just referring to Edward V. And it's unclear at the time of recording and at the time of research if there are actually any remains left of John Evans. We found his tomb. We found an effigy. There's a whole bunch of stuff pointing that, hey, these two people were the same. But I haven't been able to find if there's any remains left. But also, this is from the 15th and 16th century. So if there are any remains left, they're probably incredibly delicate. And they're probably if they do exist in very precarious states that we don't want to move them, we don't want to do anything, or, hey, we've been able to scan, we see bones that are here, we can put five and six together, but we can't move. I haven't seen any of that. Just that his tomb had those two carvings on them, his effigies looking at a glass. There's a lot of evidence here. There's a lot here that you can't not acknowledge. But it's pretty interesting. For centuries, it has been accepted that these princes have been murdered. And we talked about it in grave detail back in October, discussing possible theories, who killed them, why they were killed, could they have possibly lived, what concrete evidence we have. But now the narrative's changed that Richard III may have actually saved the princes and let them live out their lives in secrecy. And this isn't anything new. I've read a few stories in passing, keyword in passing, where former deposed monarchs during this time of the throne moving from royal house to royal house, and it was a lot of um, instability. Well, they just live out in secrecy. They'd rather just be quiet and people have found the evidence later rather than make a big ruckus and make a big deal. And this could be one of those examples, especially the one point that stands out to me in this final wrap-up of the discussion is the fact that John Evans appeared out of nowhere. This character, John Evans, appeared out of nowhere. He got these two prestigious titles. He built this church. And again, he he didn't know the town. He just appeared out of nowhere and was given some form of importance in the town, which again, this person's important. It's on the lands of Edward V's half-brother. There was an agreement made that was already between Elizabeth Woodville and Richard III. This could have been, again, another one of the terms, and the princes could have escaped. But now this begs the question to me, if it is true that the princes escaped, that one prince went to this town in Devon and another prince went somewhere that we're still trying to find, what are those bones that have been accepted as the prince's bones in Westminster Abbey? Then who who are they? And those, the princes or the remains that have been found in St. George's Chapel, 
who who are they now? This opens up a different can of worms. Who are these unknown remains? Who do they belong to? Who are these people? And as we know concretely, the royal collection, the queen, everybody there has not permitted DNA testing on those remains. So we, at least in my lifetime, we might never know what those two unknown remains are. But we have a new chapter to this story with the princes in the tower. They escaped. It makes me think of the Romanov family and all the conspiracies there when they were assassinated in 1917. You know, what happened to them? And, of course, we found them. But, again, we still haven't concretely found Anastasia. Or, for uh, for better or worse, we also haven't found Maria either. But this is another fun royal mystery that is one step closer to being solved. But this is, it was huge news when I saw it, and I'm still seeing people, you know, doing what I'm doing now, which is conjecturing about what they think. But I think it's possible because there's evidence during this similar time period where royals and deposed sovereigns have just lived out the rest of their life in, in secrecy and in, in silence. So who knows? And if we know more, especially what happened to the little Duke of York, you can guarantee we will have another update. But that was the big history news and big historic development. One of the princes could have escaped. Again, I have to say could have and allegedly because we don't have any bones. We can't DNA test anything. It's all alleged at this point. But there you have it. Updates about the princes in the tower and and also in news at the top of the episode. Developments with the more recent Duke of York. So in some ways, this is a weird Duke of York centric episode, which is just weirdly ironic. My sources for today's podcast are CBS News, The Daily Mail, The Times, The Mirror, and many other royal commentators across social media like Robert Jobson. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. I really appreciate you sticking around. If you would like to recommend topics for future episodes or let me know how I'm doing, or to improve the podcast, you can drop me a line over at britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com. I check the email regularly, and all suggestions are welcome. If you want to stay up to date on the podcast and events within the royal family, you can head on over to either Twitter, where we are at fanatic underscore royal, or you can join the Facebook page, the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I've been trying to post regularly as I can on both pages to keep all of you up to date with the podcast and what's going on within the royal family. If you feel so inclined and would like to donate to the podcast, there are two ways you can do that. You can do that either on the Anchor homepage and do monthly subscription, or you can do a one-time donation on PayPal. If you donate to the podcast, you can recommend topics for future episodes. You can um, have a direct line of contact to me and your voice gets heard immediately. And we've had our first listener episode uh, towards the end of 2021. And it was a fantastic way so that you can have topics you want discussed discussed head on over to wherever you're listening to uh, rate, review, subscribe, and share. The more you do that, the bigger the family can get, and also the more that I can improve the show. Yeah, it's a one-man show over here. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Stay safe and stay healthy out there, and I'll see you in the next one.